Well, good morning. My name is Gil. I'm one of the pastors here at Lakewood. If you're visiting with us, I'd like to, to welcome you as well. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. I trust that you all had a, a wonderful Thanksgiving, and, uh, maybe restful, uh, a good time with family, and then if you went out uh, Black Friday shopping afterwards, uh, we're glad that you survived and are here with us this morning. But now Advent is here, and today is the first Sunday of Advent. And having just celebrated Thanksgiving, many of us are looking ahead to the coming months and anticipating the busyness of the Christmas season, shopping for gifts, um, for your favorite pastor of outreach. (laughs) If you want, my Amazon wish list is available. Uh, Just email me. You know, preparing for Christmas celebrations in our homes or looking ahead to travel. Uh, There's cookies to bake. There's gifts to buy and wrap. There's homes to decorate. There's lights to put up on trees. There's celebrations to go to. There's songs to sing and Hallmark Channel movies to watch. Those started on Halloween weekend. In sports, we've college football conference championships next weekend, bowl games, the start of the basketball season, the stretch to the playoffs in the NFL. And there's a lot to keep us busy and distracted. But now after a day that has been set aside for giving thanks, and at the beginning of this most wonderful time of the year, I want to gently remind you that the anticipation that we feel about all of the great things to be enjoyed in this time of the year, uh, it should be eclipsed by the anticipation that we feel for celebrating the greatest birth in all of history. God Himself took on human form and lived here on earth. He came to show Himself. He had revealed Himself in creation and through His prophets and in His written Word, but now He Himself was coming to be with us and to fulfill His promise to redeem us out of our sin and rebellion and to restore us to the purpose for which we were created. We give gifts at Christmas to show our love for each other, yes, but mainly we give gifts to remember the gift of life that God gave to us in sending Christ. We put up pretty lights, not just to enhance our celebrations and to bring light to what would otherwise be dark, short days of winter, but mainly to remind us that Jesus is the light of the world. And our songs are meant to both tell us the story and to remind us of so much that is true about God, of His love and His compassion and His mercy and His faithfulness and His grace. Over the past several weeks, Eileen in the children's ministry has made available uh, resources to help you celebrate Advent, and they announced that in the hot sheet. I didn't see those resources out there. Um, they might have some left over if you want to email Eileen and ask. Otherwise, there are tons of online resources available. If you don't already make this a part of your family Christmas traditions, I would encourage you to do so this year. Not, as, not just as a way to help the kids count down the days until Christmas, though it does help with that too, um, but as a way to focus your attention on Christ, to center your celebrations on Him, and disciple ourselves in the midst of all the other fun and exciting things that happen. Since this is the first Sunday of Advent, and since Christmas is for many a time for family, uh, I thought this morning we'd talk a little bit about Jesus' family. So if you want to take out your note sheet, we're going to look at how Matthew opens his gospel. 
how he introduces it, and how he sets the stage for his account of Jesus' life, starting with Jesus' birth. The central personality in the Old Testament is the coming king who will rule in God's promised kingdom. The prophets speak to him, speak of him as both divine and human. Isaiah tells us that he would be born of a virgin, that he would be despised, forsaken, stricken, pierced, crushed, chastened, scourged, oppressed, and afflicted. Daniel speaks of him as one like the Son of Man. And Isaiah, going back to that, also tells us that the government would rest on his shoulders and his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government and peace and that he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Though Through Micah, the Lord declared that from Bethlehem would come one who would be ruler in Israel, his going forth from long ago, from the days of eternity. Zephaniah tells his people that when this king comes, he will be the king of Israel, the Lord in their midst. Zechariah tells us that he will be just and endowed with salvation and that when he reigns, every family on earth will be able to go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. The Old Testament leaves with us with so much anticipation. A king like no other king is coming. And then for over 400 years, God's prophets go silent. It's like the silence that descends, the quiet that falls as the house lights go down in the moments before the curtain is to rise in the greatest drama ever written. And then with Matthew, the overture starts to play. Matthew introduces the promised king, and he begins by establishing Jesus' right to rule by showing his royal genealogy. Now, for Jews, genealogies were extremely important. In fact, your, your whole life kind of revolved around what tribe and what family you, you came from. And it was absolutely essential that if anybody was going to present, be presented as king, they had, it, they had to have the pedigree to prove it. For example, after the conquest of Canaan, it was essential to determine what your tribe was and what your heritage was so that you knew where to live. The, tri- the, the land was divided up by tribes. Under circum- certain, certain circumstances, say that three times fast, transfer of property acquired accurate knowledge of a family tree. We've been talking about uh, Nehemiah and the return of the, from the Babylonian captivity in Ezra 2. The people started coming back from Israel and many were claiming to be priests and to be of the tribe of Levi. And, you know, God was very, very serious about who was a priest. And so when these people came back and they tried to claim the right to priesthood, they had to prove it. And, if, and it had to be proven on the basis of their genealogy. And it says in Ezra 2.62, if it wasn't found, they were excluded from the priesthood. They might have been Levites, but if they couldn't prove it, Sorry. When the Gospel of Luke begins, what is it that Joseph and Mary are, are doing? Well, they're, they're going down to Bethlehem to register according to their own ancestry because they were still identifying people in that manner. So it was a very common thing. Ancestry.com had nothing on ancient Israel. So, since Matthew's message centers around Christ as king, it's crucial for him 
to establish his royal bona fides. He had to be descended from Abraham. He was from the tribe of Judah, which identified his tribe, and a descendant of King David, which established his royalty. So, okay, great, Gil. That's great. Thanks for this lesson on Jewish culture and governance. It's all very interesting. Yeah. But there's more that we can learn. You see, even the genealogies that we often skip over are revelations of the character and nature of God. Even Matthew's genealogy, from that we learn about Jesus' families, and we learn more than Jesus' lineage. We see beautiful reflections of God's grace. Jesus was sent by a gracious father to be a gracious king, and his royal lineage testifies to this. You see, the history of Jesus' family is not a lily-white procession of paragons of virtue. These people had some major issues. So let's have a look at some of them. Starting in Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So let's stop right there. Judah is a big name in the Bible. Judah was a big tribe in the Bible. Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. King David was from Judah. The holy city of Jerusalem sat in the allotment given to Judah. The southern kingdom of, uh, was comprised of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, with Judah being the largest. And at the time of the census in Numbers, Judah was the largest tribe. Judah was at the head of the three tribes that led Israel on the march and occupied a prime place when Israel was camping. And so we would come to think that Judah must have been something else if his tribe rose to such prominence. And then again, maybe not. We know Judah a little bit better from Genesis chapter 38. The story of Judah, it happens uh, within the story of Joseph. Judah, after they had thrown Joseph into the well, suggests that rather than kill Joseph, they sell him into slavery instead. And so they do that, and then Judah's brothers go off to tell Jacob that Judah or that Joseph had been killed when really he'd been sold into slavery. After this, Judah kind of wanders away from his family, and he marries a Canaanite woman. He repeats the mistake of his uncle Esau. Uh, he marries an, an, this Canaanite woman, and he has three sons with her. Their names are Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Uh, it also appears that Judah did not uh, make a very good father. At least he didn't uh, do a good job of raising his sons to obey God. Because after Ur has grown and Judah finds him a wife, Tamar, Ur is struck down by God in early adulthood for what Genesis says was wickedness in the sight of the Lord. And so Tamar is a widow. It was tradition in ancient Near Eastern cultures for the widow of a deceased, the childless widow of a deceased, to be married to one of the deceased brothers and have children with him uh, so as to carry on the family uh, name and the bloodlines and, and to keep the inheritance in the family. And so Judah goes to his son Onan and says, Onan, I want you to marry Tamar and have children with her so that your brother Ur can have children. 
And uh, Onan marries uh, Tamar, but didn't didn't want to have children with her. And so, uh, but he didn't seem to mind some of the more pleasurable parts of marriage. And so he practices an ancient form of birth control. And when he's with her, so that she would not get pregnant. And because of this, God kills him too. So that leaves Sheila. And Tamar promises to give, uh, or Judah promises to give Tamar to Sheila, but he says that Sheila's not old enough, so Tamar should go back and live in her father's house as a, a widow. And she does this. And time passes, and Tamar waits, and nothing happens. Pretty soon, Judah's wife also dies, and after his mourning period, he goes up to Timnah, and he resumes his uh, business. He's a shepherd, and it's time for sheep shearing, and sheep shearing is when shepherds make their money. So Judah goes up to Timnah, and he goes up to shear and to collect and to party. Tamar hears about it, and she realizes that Judah isn't going to keep his promise. So she decides to take matters into her own hands. She covers her faith face with a veil, she poses along the side of the road as a prostitute and as uh, makes sure that she's going to be where Judah's walking by. And as Judah walks by, he sees her. Uh, He doesn't recognize her, but he's in the mood to party. And so he solicits her services. They sleep together and then uh, promises to send payment later. As collateral, he gives her his signet, his cord, and his staff. This would be like uh, leaving your driver's license and your social security card nowadays. They didn't have life lock back then. When he sends someone back with the payment, she's gone. And Judah decides to just put it behind him rather than to track her down. Oh, Judah and Tamar's night together leaves Tamar pregnant with twins. And Judah hears about it and he goes into a righteous fit. Eh, but Maybe he's a little relieved that the problem of his promise to marry his son Sheila to the black widow is solved. So he declares that she has disgraced the family. She's betrothed to Sheila. She's committed adultery. She's she's disgraced the family. She should be burned to death. And as the light of the flames flicker, Tamar produces Judah's signet cord and staff. And she identifies the owner of those items as the father of the children. And Judah is ashamed. The children born to Tamar are Perez and Zerah. And Perez becomes the father of Hezron, the father of Ram, the father of Amminadab, the father of Nashon, the father of Salmon, the father of Boaz, the father of Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David the king. This story sounds like something uh, out of the National Enquirer. I mean, any prominent family would do their best to sweep it under the rug. It's, it's not a story that evokes pride and status. It's a stain. To us, it would seem more proper that God would put this story in the Bible right in the middle of the story of Joseph and then say to us, and this is why the lineage of Christ passed through Joseph, who was a man of integrity, and Judah disqualified himself. But the Bible declares that we are all sinners in need of God's grace. Romans 3.10 says that there is no one righteous, not even one. And Paul later says in Romans 7.18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I desire to do what is right, 
but not the ability to carry carry it out. I mean, if Paul can't get it right, what hope do the rest of us have? And Satan's specialty is to swoop in, especially when we fail and scream, you did it this time. You really messed up. If people knew what you really were, only they knew the real you, you're not who you pretend to be, do you think you're going to get away with it? And his victims hardly feel worthy to go to church and be with other believers who they are sure are going to, are doing a better job of living the Christian life than they are. They avoid spending time with God and they see no hope of change. You see, the story of the family history of Jesus is the story of God's redemptive grace. God's grace and God's mercy is for everyone who has messed up and comes to Him in repentance. God's specialty is forgiving and putting away people's sins from His sight. He delights in taking failures like Judah and Tamar and grafting them into His son's family tree. You see, it wasn't Judah's legitimate son, Sheila, who becomes Jesus' ancestor. It's Perez, the child of in-law entrapment and in-law incest. Isn't that amazing? It's as if God is saying, forever I want my people to know that I not only forgive mess-ups, I can take them and touch them and heal them and bring the most amazing things from them. God takes twisted people and He makes them straight. He takes the messes that we make of our lives and He transforms them into holiness. He took a tribe with inauspicious beginnings and through it brought His Son into the world. The son that Revelation would call the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is about our deliverance. He takes our mistakes and our wanderings and he redeems them for his glory. No record is so stained. No case is so hopeless that he cannot reach into it and bring salvation to that person. Judah is the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. (laughs) Rahab. We read the story of Rahab in uh, Joshua 2. Israel is set to begin their conquest of the land of Canaan. And the first stronghold they must take is Jericho. Joshua sends two spies in the city to look around, and when they enter the city, they meet Rahab, Rahab the Canaanite, Rahab the prostitute. Some teach that Rahab was a temple prostitute, and as such, she would have been a wealthy and respected person in Jericho, but there are indications in the text that actually seem to argue otherwise. The text says that Rahab's house was built into the city wall. Archaeological digs around Jericho suggest that the city may have had a, a double wall structure with houses built between the inner and outer walls. And those were generally the houses of, of the lower classes with the wealthy, of course, living closer to the center of the city. What's more likely is that Rahab's house was located near one of the gates, and so she would ply her trade with merchants coming into the city to trade. So the spies come in, maybe they're disguised as merchants. After all, 
Would spies really come into the city in uniform or with name tags saying, Hi, I'm a spy. But they catch her eye and she approaches them. And they go into her house and before anything happens, either she discovers, maybe from their accents or from their lack of facility with the language, uh, or you know, maybe they tell her that they're spies. She finds out they're spies. And at this point, she has a choice. She can kick them out. Just go on with life and hope, that, hope for the best. She can sound the alarm and become a hero. Or she can hide them. Her mind goes to the fear that has descended on the city. as They've heard the stories of the Israelite horde approaching. She's fearful, yes. But her words also show that she has seen what happened to the Egyptians and the Amorites and has acquired a degree of faith. An understanding that Israel's God is the God of heaven and earth and that, she is, and that He is sovereign and has given the land to Israel. At least that's what it says in Joshua 2.11. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. So she chooses God's side and she betrays her people She hides the spies, she lies to the king of Jericho, and then she helps the spies escape. In return for their help, for her help, she asks that she and her family be spared when Israel destroys the city. We fast forward, Joshua 6, and we see that the two spies keep their promise. Rahab and her family are spared, and in verse 25 we read that Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day, Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the Canaanite, lived in Israel up until the time of the writing of Joshua, outside of the camp to start out with. But then she marries a son of Perez. Rahab the prostitute is known for her faith and obedience. James 2.25 talks about how Rahab's faith was displayed in her works. And her faith is laid alongside of that that of Abraham. Hebrews 11 lists her in the so-called hall of faith. Rahab the prostitute believed God. And because of that belief, God saved her. He saved her from joining her people in destruction. A people God had said had become so wicked who if they were left alive, they would utterly pollute Israel. They had become so wicked, God had commanded Israel to leave no one alive. Not even the livestock. And no stone upon another. And that if anyone attempted to rebuild the city, he would lose his firstborn and his youngest child before the city was complete. Rahab the prostitute believed God, and she took her place in the line of the one who would save his people from from their sins. Do we look at people sometimes and assess their potential for the kingdom? Maybe consciously or sub... Maybe not consciously, maybe subconsciously. Are some people in our eyes more suited for the faith or more likely to come to faith than others? Would we look at the army of ISIS or the mullahs of Iran, the people who murdered Christians in the Sudan, or even those who today triumph and exalt over what they call progress 
but is really just a continuation down the path of wickedness that is not all that different from Sodom. And point to them and say, that person is going to be a brother or sister in Christ. See, Rahab the prostitute is probably one of those people. But she's a testament to the power of the grace of God. If anyone would have been written off as unsuitable for the kingdom or highly unlikely to come to faith, it would have been Rahab, the prostitute Canaanite of Jericho. But the fame of God's name had preceded Israel, and Rahab saw the glory of God, and she believed and acted on that faith, and God's grace came to her. Rahab the prostitute became Rahab the former prostitute, who was saved because of her faith, She became an ancestor of Jesus. No one is too far from the faith. No one. Let's go on. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Now, Ruth is a great story. But Ruth also comes from a checkered past. She was an outsider too. Ruth was a Moabite. The Moabites were ancient enemies of Israel who worshipped the false god Chemosh. Moab and Israel, they were basically cousins. Uh, Moab was a son of Lot, who was the nephew of Abraham. That's no big deal until you understand how Lot fathered Moab. Back in Genesis 19, we find Lot in Sodom. God determines to destroy that city but chooses to spare Lot and his family. Lot, his wife, and his two daughters flee as God rains fire on Sodom. They're commanded not to look back, but Lot's wife disobeys and looks back as they flee, and she is turned into a pillar of salt. And so Lot is left alone with his daughters. They take up residence in a cave. The daughters realize that their prospects for marriage and children are grim, and so they hatch a plan. They get their father drunk, One the first night and the other the second. Each one lays with him and they become pregnant. The oldest one has a child named Moab, whose descendants are the Moabites. And so Ruth comes from a pagan culture, descended from the incestuous union of Lot and his oldest daughter. It was a culture that was shunned by Israel. The scripture isn't clear why Ruth chose to attach herself to Naomi instead of returning to her family after her husband Ruth's son and Naomi's husband and and her other son die, perhaps Ruth's family had disowned her for marrying an Israelite. Perhaps Ruth felt her prospects were better in Israel than in Moab. Perhaps she had learned something from Naomi and her family about the God of Israel and had been stirred to faith. There seems to be something of that in her statement to Naomi in Ruth uh, 116. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. So Ruth returns to Bethlehem with Naomi, and as the story goes, uh, she does what destitute people in Israel did. She goes out to follow the harvesters and to pick up what they drop. It's called gleaning. And that's so she and her mother-in-law will have food. Boaz, who owns the field where she's gleaning, notice her. And uh, helps her out when, when uh, Ruth tells Naomi about this. Naomi hatches a plan that ultimately results in Boaz taking Ruth as his wife. 
It's a story that's rich in redemptive themes that are relevant to this morning, much of which we've covered. It's a drama that rivals, rivals even the best Hallmark Channel movies. And there isn't enough time for us to cover all of it. I want to point out something very interesting in Ruth chapter 4, and verse 12. After Boaz and Ruth finally get together, but before they are married, they receive the blessing of the elders who say, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. Perez? Whom Tamar bore to Judah. Are you kidding me? May God grant you to have as your offspring what God was doing all the way back in the time of Leah and Rachel and what God was doing with Judah, Judah and Tamar and Perez as the, he was the innocent offering, offspring of that sordid story. May your family be like this too. And Boaz and Ruth, they're not engaged in an illicit relationship, so the allusion is to, to that of the privilege of the position. And when we look down further in chapter 4, we find the conclusion of the story. Verse 18, Now these are the generations of Perez. Of all the places the writer of Ruth, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, could have started. Abraham, the patriarch. Jacob, who became Israel. Judah, for whom Boaz's tribe was named. He starts with Perez. Perez, the innocent child of an illicit relationship whose descendant marries the descendant of a child of an incestuous relationship, their child who becomes Obed, the father of Jesse, who is the father of King David, who come, from whom comes Jesus, Jesus who welcomes the outsider, who rescues and redeems the outcast and rejected, who gives hope to the hopeless. Each and every one of us was at one time an outsider without hope. Ephesians 2, 12 through 19 tells us, remember that you were at the time, that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of, of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Like Ruth, we were separate. We were alien. We were strangers. We were without hope. But now in Christ, we're reconciled. We're adopted. We're included. God's grace apprehended by faith in Christ brings hope and life where there is hopelessness and death. Let's continue on. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew doesn't mention her by name, but his readers know who she is, the wife of 
of Uriah, Bathsheba. In the spring of the year, when kings go to war, that's what, how Psalm, 2 Samuel 11 begins, David is not where he's supposed to be. He's in Jerusalem. He's on his roof, and he sees Bathsheba bathing. And David sends for her, and they have an affair, and she becomes pregnant. David Hurley brings her husband Uriah home and tries to get him to sleep with her so that it will appear that the child is Uriah's. But Uriah shows greater integrity than David and refuses even after David gets him drunk. So instead, David has Uriah killed. David goes, does marry Bathsheba after she completes her mourning time and she has a son. But David is caught. And God punishes him in several ways, including the death of the child, intrigue and rebellion in David's own house and family, and public disgrace for David. If this were to happen today, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, CNBC, 24-hour news services would be all over it. Busy for months, hashing out every detail, and David would have to exit public life. happens all the time. We know nobody's perfect. People fail and fall. Sometimes those people are leaders. And their fall has farther reaching implications and the hurt goes further than might otherwise be the case. And David's fall isn't just a story of a fall. It's a story of repentance and forgiveness. And it's a story of restoration. You see, David repented and God restored him. In God's kingdom, the end of failure is not only forgiveness and repentance, it's restoration. We were created for fellowship with a holy God, but our sin separates us from Him when we repent. God doesn't just forgive, He restores us to fellowship with Him. When Peter denied Christ, that wasn't the end of the road for him. Jesus restored him. The road might be long. Trust needs to be rebuilt. And it's often really difficult, so difficult to hurt, to forgive the hurt. But if we take the Bible seriously, and we say we do, then part of our discipleship, our growth in godliness, is embracing God's plan of repentance and forgiveness reconciliation, and restoration. See, out of this relationship comes Solomon. Solomon, the famous king of Israel, who pleases God by asking for wisdom when he becomes king, who leads Israel into its golden age, who builds the temple. And so, continues the story of God's redemption and His inclusion of people into the lineage of His Son, who most of us would want to hide. We certainly wouldn't highlight any of these if we were going to recount our own ancestry. Wouldn't that be out of the character of God? Men would look for nobility, for a regal and untainted bloodline to point to and say, now there's somebody who comes from excellent stock, who is descended from the finest of the fine. There's a man who should be king. But God has something different to show us in sending His Son and the ancestry through which He chooses to send Him. You see, We didn't talk about how Abraham lied twice about his relationship to Sarah, his wife, or how Jacob deceived his father and brother to get Esau's birthright and blessing, or of the wickedness of Jeconiah, 
that resulted in the Lord cursing him. Jesus, if he were here today, might say, Hi, I'm Jesus. I come from a family that has seen a lot of dysfunction. I have a family tree that includes in-law entrapment and incest in one part, prostitution in another. Down this hall, there's perverted origins, adultery and murder down this other one. And then when you get to my mom, teenage unwed pregnancy. Until Gabriel steps in and helps Joseph understand that Mary's pregnancy is from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph can take her as his wife. If I was Matthew, I think I would have left out some of these or simply said Jesus was descended from Abraham of the tribe of Judah and the royal line of King David through Solomon and left it at that. If I was trying to present Jesus as the Messiah and the King of all kings, I would not want to remind anyone of the scandals in his lineage. I wouldn't have done that. And that's why you can be glad that I didn't write this. Because God did. And I think the clue to why is found in verse 21 of Matthew 1. When Gabriel says to Joseph, And you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. People. All people. Since Jesus' lineage isn't only Jewish, but includes those who are outsiders. Sins. Not sin as in the sin nature, although he does that as well. But sins. As we look back over this genealogy, we remember the stories and we remember the stories of people in it. We understand that this is the kind of human race. These are the kind of people that Jesus came to save from their sins. And I think part of the argument of this opening chapter is that if Jesus is going to be the kingdom of his kingdom, which is going to be one of the central themes of this gospel, it opens with Jesus' ancestral authority, it closes with his heavenly authority, it opens with his genealogy, which is a mix of both Jew and Gentile, it closes with his commission to the nations. If Jesus is going to be the king of his kingdom, he's going to have to deal with our sins. And he can in a way that is real and that is personal because he knows. Hebrews 4.15 talks about Jesus as our high priest, as our mediator between God and us. And he says that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way and yet did not sin. This priest is also our king. Hebrews goes on to say that because of this, we can have confidence to approach the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace and help in our time of need. So if Jesus is going to be king of his kingdom, he must deal with our dysfunction, our sins, the intimidating guilt of my past and yours. This speaks to the issue of how he will establish a kingdom of righteousness. He must deal with the impurity problem with the solution of purity. And this is where the kingdom and redemptive programs of God come together. How do you get into the kingdom of God? Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. The door into the kingdom comes through the redemption that Christ secures and deals with the issue of our sins. I haven't spent much time looking into my ancestry 
not aware of any monumental skeletons in my family's closet, but I'm sure there are some. I can tell you that I have lied on occasion. I am not the best husband and father I can be. There have been times when I've hurt people. Despite appearances, I'm far from perfect. I come from a family that's seen a lot of dysfunction. My most distant grandfather's name is Adam. He messed up one day and I've been getting into trouble ever since. You see, we all come from dysfunction. And our kids will be able to say the same. But we can also say that it is for us that Jesus came to be the king of his kingdom, to save his people from their sins, and to redeem us for his glory. Will you pray with me? Father, what a wonderful way for you to begin the New Testament. As we find a place of entry, a place of invitation, a place of identity, acceptance, purpose, and a future. Thank you for the work that you have done and will do through your Son in what you've commissioned him to, the one who was born King from the Jews and who will one day be worshipped as King of kings and Lord of lords. We look forward to that day. May you use us in your grace in the meantime to help prepare people to see you, to meet you, and to live in your kingdom for all eternity. And we pray this in the name of your Son, our King and Redeemer. Amen.